big thanks to Callum. Did anybody see Callum in the picture of the Malahide team from last year? That smile would light up a room. Thanks, Callum. Um, let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's ask him for his help. Father, we thank you that you have so much to teach us, that you gave us a book, uh, you give us your word, and that you speak through it even today. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, would you teach us, would you guide us, would you help us to learn, uh, to listen, and live in light of who you are uh, as a great God who gives us boundaries for how we ought to live and live well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm a murderer, and you should fear me. It's true. I'm a cold-blooded killer, especially behind the wheel. You cross me, I'll kill you. Be too slow, I'll kill you. Come too close, I'll kill you. Try and stay too far out in front of me, I'll kill you. Pick my favorite character, and I actually might literally kill you. Of course, I'm talking about Mario Kart. And there is the right honorable Yoshi and his lethal weapon, the red shell. Yoshi is the best, isn't he? You pick Yoshi I will kill you. Uh, together, Yoshi and I have taken our, out our fair share of dragons, mushrooms, and princesses. He's a mean green killing machine, not to be messed with. But why, why is it okay, even fun and celebrated, to barge Luigi off Rainbow Road on the Nintendo, but if you were to throw an Italian plumber off a mountain in real life, you'd be in big trouble? It's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Take Yoshi down, please. Actually, in the original language, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is just two words. No murder. Now, that's literally all we're given. No murder. Now, that tells us that according to God and his way of living, murder is morally wrong, doesn't it? But it doesn't actually tell us much more than that. No murder. It doesn't tell us why or how it just tells us not to go killing people that's not allowed and i guess to some degree the reasons for that are kind of obvious if we were allowed to kill off those who annoyed us whether siblings or parents teachers love rivals those who use their phone in the cinema those who chat during ce um, those who can't wish happy birthday to other people on social media without including a picture of themselves in the post uh, Methodists, if we were allowed to kill everybody who annoyed us, it, it, it wouldn't be the greatest of societies to live in, would it? I mean, if, if we were allowed to kill people willy-nilly if they annoyed us, I would be dead right now. I am very murderable. Um, CE would probably just be Gilly and the Sound Lads, and even then there might be a standoff, sidebar, Dr. Phil versus Gilly, Clash of the Titans. I would pay to see that. This world wouldn't be the best place to live if we were allowed to cap off anybody who crossed us. It would be like Lurgan, not very safe and not very pleasant. The, the world knows that murder isn't very dead on. That's why there are laws against it. There are laws about even accidentally killing people. We call that manslaughter. Is murder okay? No. Practically everybody who ever lived would say that. And if you, if, you, if you answered yes to that question, I guess you open up the possibility for someone to come along and murder you and be justified. Murder's wrong. That's wrong, actually, for reasons far beyond the importance of feeling safe in society. Scripture, God's word, tells us that murder is wrong because to murder a human being is actually an offense against God. It rejects a special identity that God gives to human beings, to people like you and me. You see, God has created mankind. You, if you're here tonight, and you're a human, and you are. God's created you in his own image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us this. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of man, our God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We people have been created by God in the image of God. That means if you're a human, no matter your race or religion, your nationality or your politics, your height, your weight, the size of your ears, and some of you have got big wing knots, whether you've got a disability or you're completely healthy, whatever that means, even if you're the sort of person who, when you're in a conversation, is looking for someone else to talk into, like there's a better offer elsewhere, you're the worst. If you're human, you're made in God's image. And that means you have value and dignity and worth given to you by God. And so it's not okay for you to murder anyone or for anybody to murder you for any reason. That's, that's actually been the understanding of society for a long time. And that's because of Christianity. It's because of a Christian understanding that every person on this earth is created equal in the eyes of God, whether rich or poor, intelligent or not, attractive or otherwise. God has created people in his own image. It's a sin against God to murder. It rejects God's plan. It rejects the importance that God places on you, on people. God values life. He values your life today, even if you don't. He values the lives of those that society deems as worthless or subhuman. Murder is wrong. God says so. Now, this commandment doesn't rule out certain types of killing. I want to make that clear. It doesn't outlaw, for example, self-defense. Exodus uh, 22, verses 2 and 3, that's just two chapters after the Ten Commandments were given. This is what it says. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Here's what that means. If someone breaks into your home and you have no choice but to protect yourself and your family by physical force, and it happens that you end up killing that person as the only way to protect yourself and your loved ones, you aren't guilty of murder, according to God. It's a tragedy. The loss of human life always is, but you aren't a murderer. However, if you look at verse 3 there, it says, if the sun has risen on him, and that means if this happened and people were able to look on and say, hold on a minute, there was actually no need for you to kill that guy, then actually you are guilty. Say this man wasn't armed or he wasn't using physical force and you killed him, you would be guilty. But self-defense as necessity isn't murder. Hopefully we never find ourselves in that situation. This commandment also doesn't rule out war. Now, there are wars that take place that are evil, uh, they're murderous, they're unnecessary ways for evil men to further their agendas in this world. But there are wars that are necessary for peace. Think of World War II, for example. Hitler and the Nazis, they needed stopped. No one's going to argue against that. If you look through Scripture in the Old Testament especially, there are many examples of just wars that God leads his people in. There are also examples of wars that aren't just that God's people go into, that God doesn't allow them to, and as a result, many of them die. Just wars and self-defense don't fall under this commandment. Cold-blooded murder, rage-filled murder, and also the taking of life complete, caused by complete carelessness do, though. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, that teaches us about the accidental taking of life that we're still responsible for. It says this, 
when you build a new house, uh, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that's an interesting word, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. See, in those days, people would gather on roofs of houses, especially at nighttime, to chill out. And a parapet is like a protective wall. It's like a railing or like a banister uh, that would have stopped people, especially children, from falling off, hurting themselves, and dying. In other words, if you're so lazy that you can't protect life, if you're so careless that you refuse to protect life, and someone dies as a result of your actions, you're responsible for God. You're responsible for their death. I guess the modern equivalent of this is is probably something like texting and driving, or driving under the influence. If you drive a car at speed while texting someone, and you take someone's life as a result, you're responsible. God values life, and so we should take care to value life as well. Murder is wrong. That's what the sixth commandment teaches us. Cold-blooded murder, premeditated taking of someone's life, rage-filled, thoughtless killing of someone in anger, and careless, accidental killing too. But, I mean, what does that have to say to us? I mean, I can't speak for you, but I don't think I've ever actually come close to killing someone. I've told my brother in the midst of wrestling him, I'm going to kill you. But, I mean, I've never tried to source a gun or poison or a bomb. I've never picked up a knife and gone at him. I've never actually contemplated taking someone's life. I'm probably too much of a wuss. So what does this have to say to us? I want to look at you with two things tonight. The first one's on a cultural level, and the second one's on a personal level. And the first one is this. Henry talked about it last week. Uh, it's, it's abortion. And in light of legislation imposed on Northern Ireland, you've probably seen it on the news, you might have discussed it in school. It's important that we talk about this and we, we think about this well. And before we talk about it, let me be clear, this is a complicated issue. I can't chat about everything that you will have questions about. I'm not an expert either. There are life and death scenarios that we will not go into tonight. Um, but if you disagree, if you've got any questions, can I encourage you to come and chat to me? But, but this isn't something we really like to think about or talk about. And I think as Christians, it's not something that we engage well with. And that can be because it's, it's a weary topic, isn't it? It comes with a lot of difficult circumstances. It comes with a lot of emotional trauma. Often there can be a lot of shouting or on social media, a lot of the usage of capital letters. Usually propaganda comes into play. Some people are told you're not allowed to have an opinion because you're male or because you haven't been in that position or because you do not foster or adopt or campaign for the rights of children who are alive. And to be fair, Christians should do those things. And when we talk about this, especially as Christians engaging with non-Christians, we need to be really careful about what our attitude is. There's no place for us to be smug or arrogant. We should speak with grace and truth and care. But the truth is that abortion ends a human life. Not in self-defense and not for a just cause. Abortion is the end of human life. And what's crazy is that few people aware of the facts would actually disagree with that, even those who advocate for abortion. But the unnecessary taking of life is the biblical definition of murder. It's what the sixth commandment rules out. A recent paper by Stephen Jacobs shows that in a recent survey, uh, out of 5,502 biologists, 
5,212 biologists, that's 95%, 95% agree that life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. That's agreed upon. Very few self-respecting biologists would disagree with that. At conception, and that means that they're no longer a bunch of just cells, but it's a human life. It's not a potential human being. It's a human with potential. The issue is, however, there are lots of people that would argue that although there is human life there, and this is what you'll hear, they'll say, it's not a person. This is where those who advocate for abortion and those who realize the dignity and value and worth of all human life with a Christian understanding diverge. Those at the forefront of the abortion movement claim that the child in the womb, yes, it's human, but they would describe the child as a merely biological life. That's a direct quote from bioethicist Joseph Fletcher. Instead, for you to be a person, they lay out a whole bunch of criteria that you must meet for your life to have meaning. For you to be a person, not just a human. Criteria up on the screen there includes intelligence, self-awareness, self-control, a sense of time, concern for others, curiosity, and communication. Others on the more extreme ends of things, they throw in independence, I think if we're honest, hardly any of us in this room meet that, sponging off our parents. And they would even throw in what they would describe as health, really meaning you should have no disability whatsoever. There are two philosophers that are out there at the minute, uh, I'm going to try and get their names right, Ghibellini and Minerva, and they advocate for abortion and even what they call post-birth abortion. In other words, infanticide, killing babies. And they say this, fetuses and newborns are not persons. In other words, they do not think them to be persons. And since non-persons have no moral rights to life, there are no reasons for banning after-birth abortions. In other words, letting a child that's been born die. And in this article, they use a really scary phrase, talking about infants with disabilities. And that phrase is this, lives, three words, not worth living. Ironically, that is the exact same phrase that Nazi Germany used when they started using their gas chambers to kill those with disabilities. The phrase that they used in German was not worth living. You'd have to say for these two philosophers in making those comments, there's not much intelligence. There's zero self-awareness. I mean, they're borrowing phrases from Nazis. There's no self-control. There's a complete absence of concern for others. By their own standards, they don't really meet the criteria to be a person. So should we kill them with no consequence? And the answer is obviously absolutely not. You see, the list of of things people come up with to make humans people, that's not based in reality or science or anything else for that matter. They're based on empty philosophy or convenience or feelings. The Christian worldview says to be human is to be a person. There's no distinction between the two. No difference between the two. If you're a human, you're a person. There's no difference. If you're a human being, whether in the womb or in Eden Dairy CE, your life has meaning and value, worth, importance, and dignity. Your life is worth protecting, not because of your smartness or your communication skills or your health, but because you're made in the image of God.
And he gives value to every man and woman as they are made in his image. Psalm 139 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Even in the womb, when the world gives no value to human life, the Lord values it immensely. Now, there are a whole series of objections, and you can come and talk to me afterwards, absolutely. But you might say, what about a woman's right? And that's a valid question. Women have been degraded throughout history. But scripture tells us that there isn't a high hierarchy on the value of life depending on whether you're being born or not. One life is not more important than another to the point where you can end another's life. Life is created by God for God. And more than that, if you really care about women's rights, and you should, you should be against abortion, which is carried out far more often on girls than boys. The UN estimates that there are 200 million women missing due to gender-selective abortion. 200 million killed because of their gender. It's a girl are three of the arguably most dangerous words in history. And what about children who might not survive? And that's a serious topic and it's challenging and it's sad and you need to think well about it. But Nancy Piercy, she's a Christian writer, she says this, if we witnessed a car accident and we were uncertain whether the victim was going to make it, we wouldn't say, since we're not quite sure, let's kill him. Of course not. We would try and save his life. The same principle applies to abortion. If we as Christians are to live out the sixth commandment on a cultural level, we're to stand against the culture of death that abortion promotes. We can't get on board. We can't celebrate it, nor can we stand idly by and do nothing. And more than that, the people who say, unless you care about fostering or adoption or the lives of children outside the womb, you don't get a say, they're right. Tomorrow, for example, is Adoption Sunday. It's an initiative run by an organization called Home for Good. Can I encourage you? Look that up. Research the work that they do. You might think, I'm 14. What do I care about adoption? Can I encourage you? Look it up and see if God will stir something in your heart for the future. Look into fostering and adoption. Look up about charities like Door of Hope. That's a charity that my Ruth went out and actually worked with in South Africa. They take abandoned babies in and they raise them. They try and get them adopted so that they can enjoy life like normal kids. We partner as CE with Stand By Me, which is orphanages and schools and day centers like the one Cami runs all over the globe. Could you sacrifice a frankly rotten avocado infested brunch to give five or ten pounds a month to charities like this to support children that the world deems aren't worthy of life. If we're to keep the sixth commandment, we need to not just not murder. We need to stand against it. I said I was going to look at two things with you tonight. The first on a cultural level, abortion. This is clearly a huge issue. But so is the second, and we'll look at this really briefly. It's a personal level, and that's anger. 
Anger, you might say, what's wrong with anger? Well, Jesus says a lot. This is his words, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus said, You've heard it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. For Jesus to be angry is to murder. Now, this anger Jesus speaks of, um, the insulting that he says, but you need to understand what's going on here. This isn't righteous anger. You know, the sort of anger Jesus had when he's flipping tables and uh, insulting the Pharisees, calling them uh, idiots for being hypocrites. The insulting isn't the Northern Irish banter that we have with one another, thank goodness. Otherwise, I am so much more of a murderer than I am already. Uh, This is sinful anger he's talking about. And we all have a problem with sinful anger. We do. We've all experienced it. You know, we've all experienced it, haven't we, when we're about to sit down to enjoy something on Netflix or whatever after a long evening of finishing our coursework and the split second our butt touches the seat, you hear your mum, Scott! Oh, that feeling, that oh, feeling, that's anger. And it turns out she just wants you to get a pack of crisps. Flip's sake, mum. We've all experienced anger when we're in class and we think we've got out of getting homework and the bell goes and you're throwing your books in your bag and you're making a run for it and as you're sort of trying to get through the door your teacher reminds you actually here are four essays to write for tomorrow you need to draw me a self-portrait and you need to make a dessert out of spaghetti oh that is anger anger grumbles anger complains anger is that voice that says i'm better than them that selfish self-righteous feeling that bubbles around your heart. Anger says, they're worse than me. Anger says, I'm right not to be like them. Anger says, I'm right to ignore them. Anger says, I wish I didn't have to see them. Anger says, I can't wait until I don't have to see them every day. Essentially, anger says, I wish they were dead. Anger makes us murderers, according to Jesus. That feeling of teeth gritting, fist clenching, temple popping. That's the murderer in us. So what do we do? How do we fight anger? I would say this. Ask for forgiveness. Step one, ask for forgiveness. Your anger might not initially appear to have anything to do with God, but it does. All of our sin does. We have a God, though, who is not angry with us when we sin, but is quick to offer us forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who was murdered on a cross to forgive us for our murderous hearts and wants us to come to him and repent. If you look at the story of Jesus' death, actually, you'll see that his life was exchanged for that of another, a guy, Barabbas, who was freed. Barabbas was a murderer, set free. Well, Jesus died despite being innocent. That was a foreshadowing of how Jesus would let guilty murderers like you and me go free if we ask him for the forgiveness of our sins and be united to his perfection and his love and his grace. If you're angry, ask for forgiveness. Step two, be humble. Think if you're honest with yourself, not everything you get angry about is worth getting angry about. 
Not everything you get mad about is actually all that important. Most of our anger, I think, stems from us thinking we're more important than we really are. So be humble. See others as more important than yourself because that's what Jesus did for us and calls us to do. Be humble. It's really hard to be humble viewing others more highly than yourself and still be that raging bull in a china shop. Ask for forgiveness. Be humble. And lastly, maybe, maybe confusingly, be angry. But be angry about the right things in the right way. Maybe the example from earlier is the best way to think about this. Take abortion. Should we be angry that abortion is even a thing? Absolutely, we should. Should we be angry that abortion is being imposed on Northern Ireland? Absolutely, we should. It should make us angry that innocent lives will be lost, that babies will be killed, for reasons that by and large can be easily avoided. But that does not give us license to shout at people, to demonize people, even on social media, to fight with people in school or wherever else, forgetting that they too have value and worth and dignity that they are made in the image of God. We need to hold anger, forgiveness, and humility together. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry and do not sin. And that's how we make a difference without having murderous hearts. We need to be angry and be calm at the same time. Otherwise, we break the sixth commandment, and that's hard. We need God's help to help us to do that. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever did that perfectly, and he actually promises to help us. Ask him to reveal your sin to you, your murderous heart, and forgive you. Ask him to help you to be humble, to love those who are hard to love and treat them more importantly than yourself. And ask Jesus to break our hearts for what breaks his. Ask him to enable us to make a difference. He will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the way you have ordained this world is so that human life may be valued. And Lord, we know that in our own hearts we so often don't value others. We don't value other Christians. We don't value the people that we find difficult in school or in the home. So Father, we repent of our murderous hearts. Father, would you give us a real love for others? Would you give us humility to see others as more important than ourselves? Father, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Would you help us to see the issues that are worth being angry about and help us to be angry in the right way? Father, we, we need your help. And we thank you so much that you guarantee that to us in Christ Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.